every single marketer and every single brand should be attempting to earn a disproportionate share of conversation. If you work for an organization where they say, bring us a chart that goes up and to the right, you have a challenge. Half the money I spend on advertising is wasted. The trouble is, I don't know which half. I am here to inspire you, to excite you, to motivate you, to transform you, to energize you. Hello and welcome to Pipeline Visionaries. This episode features an interview with Jacqueline Woods, CMO at Teradata, the connected multi-cloud data platform for enterprise analytics, solving data challenges from start to scale. In this episode, Jacqueline talks about the new age of personalization, why AI should not be held accountable, and reminds us that data in technology is only as good as the data that's put into it. Jacqueline also shares how data is like water, and paints a picture of her vision for a unified, frictionless customer experience. But before we get into it, here's a brief word from our sponsor. Today's episode is brought to you by Qualified. If you're a revenue team that runs your business on Salesforce, Qualified will accelerate your lead generation, pipeline, and ultimately revenue. Learn more at qualified.com. So please enjoy this interview between Jacqueline Woods, CMO at Teradata, and your host, Ian Faison. Welcome to Pipeline Visionaries. I'm Ian Faison, CEO of Caspian Studios, and today I'm joined by a very special guest. Jacqueline, how are you? I'm great, Ian. How are you? I'm doing wonderful. Excited to chat about Teradata and your background and marketing, pipeline generation, AI, all that stuff. It's good stuff. I know. What a better day to talk about it. And with what a better person. And today's show is always brought to you by our friends at Qualified. You can go to qualified.com to learn more. Qualified is the number one conversational sales and marketing platform for every company's revenues team that use Salesforce. So head over to qualified.com to check them out. First question, what was your first job in marketing? So my, I think my first official job in marketing was probably when I was like selling Girl Scout cookies. Yeah, right. <laughs> and really thinking about like how to sell that or, or anything else as a kid. And I was just always really good at raising money and fundraising, which kind of in many ways led me to have an interest in what motivates people to buy things. And it's more than just, quote, talking good about something it's actually kind of having a true belief in what you're selling and and having value around that that and what the messages are so i honestly would say that because i think that prepared me for for many things interestingly enough and flash forward to today what does it mean to be cmo of teradata flash forward or fast forward which feels literally like a flash because it feels <laughs> just started my career and it's been well over 25 years. So it's been quite the journey. I actually started in finance and accounting and not in marketing just because I like data and I like information around data. So that kind of prepared me to be in a role like Teradata because it is a company that is focused on data analytics and insights on a cloud-based platform. And so in this role, and, and particularly what it means for me is I, I really get to think about how people use data and insights 
to really improve their businesses. And so that to me is pretty exciting. It is, it is interesting how being data-driven has changed so much over the past decade and what you can do with that. And obviously we're going to get deep into data here, here in a little bit, but it truly is to be a data-driven marketer is, is a pretty exciting opportunity. Yeah. Yeah, it, it really is. And I think this is an interesting time, right? Because we're at an inflection point and the way people think about brand and the way people think about how things get sold has changed dramatically. And the landscape for how that gets done has changed dramatically. And all of that basically means that you need more and more data to make better decisions and you need to understand how to use that data. So I do think that that's something that one interests me and still excites me even now after all these years. Let's head to our first segment, the trust tree. With the knowledge you've been given, you are now on the inside of what I like to call the circle of trust. What, I thought we were in the trust tree in the nest, are we not? where we go and feel honest and trusted, and you can share those deepest, darkest pipeline secrets. Tell us a little bit more about Teradata, the company, and and who you're selling to. So we sell to what I would call the global 10,000. So when you think about, you know, larger companies, big banks, big transportation companies, big retailers, big healthcare companies, Think about those types of companies first and foremost as our primary and core customers. And what we're selling is really, I like to think of it as three, what I would call core goals that most companies have. The first and foremost is how do I improve my overall business performance? And so there'll be a lot of modeling both on the, you know, what I would call F&A, so finance and analysis landscape. The, the second one would be, what do people think about when, I, when they think about customers 360? How do they deepen engagement with customers? What does that really mean? How do they create more stickiness? So lots of interest in that from many, many customers and many, many points of view. And the third leg in that stool is generally on innovation. So how do you use insights to drive innovation around products and services? And how do you use that information to inform what you do with your products and your capabilities around your products? Then you mentioned sort of a little bit about that persona. What does that buying committee look like for those type of accounts and, and those different personas? It's changed, right? So mm-hmm. when people bought technology. And and when I say back in the day, back in the day probably wasn't that long ago. Back in the day was probably five to 10 years ago, heavily dominated by the CIO and the CTO that kind of, they made the decisions. People who were in a function or an LLB did not have as much say in the products and services that were being purchased. And oftentimes those products and services may not have been meeting their needs and they may not have been expedient with how they got deployed throughout the organization. Cloud changed all that, right? Cloud really has been a democratization 
of services and products. So when you think about SaaS and SaaS providers, they're really giving and serving products and solutions on a scale that we probably couldn't even imagine 10 to 15 years ago. But you don't need to necessarily, you always need to kind of go through your CIO, but you don't, these are things that a line of business owner can essentially procure on their own because most of these things are as a service. So you can have a line of business owner, a divisional head, someone who's the head of a function, and they can go and buy marketing technology, or they can go and buy technology that they think is going to serve them and what they have to do for their own corporations or functions, as long as they manage their own bottom lines, because most of these guys have P&Ls. And so that has changed the game completely, because now... When you sell, you're not just selling to the CIO. It's usually the CIO plus a line of business owner or CIO plus a data scientist or CIO plus a functional business head. And there's probably two to three people that I would say kind of are at the core of making that decision, whether you have a chief procurement officer or CFO, CFO, CIO, and line of business person or you know, the data person that I mentioned earlier. So that's how it's changed. And what I would share is that the decider, like who ultimately decides, is generally the LOB leader in many cases, because it has to work for them and how they drive outcomes for their business. So they are very invested in these decisions and conversations. So the partnerships have changed in in organizations. Yeah, I forget the stat, but it's like someone just came out with, you know, that it's like the average buying committee is like 15 people now or something crazy like that, right? It's like, I mean, there's, it's, as you mentioned, because there's so much, you know, reliance on the line of business folks to really like fight for those dollars that it's not, you know, it's not something where, you know, one person is just going to sort of like wave the magic wand and it's going to get done. It's not one person, but who you definitely need to make sure you have a great relationship is the person with the budget. Right. (laughs) So, so I would always, I like to say, well, many people think they have a vote in the vote, but when it comes down to it, I do think like any organization, it's important for stakeholders to be involved in these decisions. And whether, I mean, I I manage a function, right? I'm a functional leader. And it doesn't mean that I just go by whatever I want. I manage those discussions across who I think my stakeholders are. Ultimately, I am making that decision. Ultimately, it is the money coming from my budget. And so that is the case in many cases. But I would be remiss to say that I'm not not making sure that I have those conversations with my key stakeholders on technologies that we may be purchasing that will have an impact to them and what they do in the company as well. That's just smart business. And I think it's important that people do that. So while it may not be 15 deciders, right, it comes down to kind of two or three people who really ultimately own that decision because you're the P&L leader, there, there certainly are many voices in the room that you have to make sure that you try to get aligned 
to drive that decision forward. And what's your marketing strategy? How does how does demand and pipeline generation fit within that? We do a few things. First and foremost is I I think having a strong account-based marketing process and strategy is critically important. And it's interesting because these are these it is a philosophy i I feel very fortunate actually because my ceo believes in abm not all companies believe in it if you use account-based marketing as one example of an opportunity to drive demand across your what i what i would say is your portfolio it is not for the faint of heart because it takes time to garner these relationships across a broader set of constituents. Like you just said, there may be 15 people who are giving input to a certain kind of, you know, opportunity that's out there. And if you have built the right relationships across the organization, then it certainly makes it much easier and you have a lot less friction as you're trying to navigate and scale an organization. So my assumption is that as many voices that are in the room as possible that you believe that you can influence your account-based strategy is going to inform that. That is one of the things that we are very bullish on. The, the second thing would be leveraging our digital presence and our even our own .com environment. Teradata.com, I always say, is the number one employee in the company. <laughs> It's on 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. And the thing that I say about Teradata.com, it speaks for you when you cannot speak for yourself. So if you have a strong website, strong environment, strong, what I would call integrated chatbot strategy, it helps to understand and inform what people are looking for, what they're asking for, and helping to understand, are they finding what they're looking for? And are they staying on your site longer than the average? We recently did a wholesale kind of upgrade and transformation to Teradata.com, and we've increased engagement by more than 100%. I mean, people are staying on the site three times as long as they were before. We did it based on roles, so you can kind of find information, whether you are kind of strong IT vent, strong business vent, strong data and analytics vent, we kind of position our content to help serve you based on the kind of person that you are. And I think that's worked tremendously well. So those are just kind of two things that I would say that we've doubled down on. Yeah, it seems like, especially if you're going after the global 10,000 and you have to just be so targeted with understanding all the different people in the room at those type of organizations, because, you know, there's, there's not, they, they are very specific and they are very different and they act very different and their level of seniority and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, there's not this, what I would call one size fits all. There is a very, I would say one size actually doesn't fit all particularly. And having those dimensions that you can personalize on or do more personalization has become 
so much more important than it was even two or three years ago. I think what happens when you look at how people purchase, particularly coming off of COVID, everyone now has a certain level of expectation around what a digital experience looks like and how they expect to engage with you. And that has changed tremendously. And we have an expectation that you somewhat know who we are, maybe not a hundred percent know us like, you know, uh, I just, you know, met you and now I know everything about you down to your DNA, but there is an expectation that you have a general sentiment and consensus about what I like, what I need to understand, how I learn, how I actually kind of, absorb and ingest information based on my own behaviors. And when we do understand that better, then we can target you in a way that doesn't feel intrusive, but feels complementary to your particular strategy. I, I will give you an example. So I was reviewing some, today I was reviewing some ads and one of my, she's actually the leader uh, in our APJ region. And she she literally said in her note, I know this ad looks very text heavy because obviously it was, it was in Japanese characters and it, yeah. it did look very dense. And she said, however, in the Japanese market, it is very much about like learning and kind of taking someone on a learning journey. So this dense text is what, you know, she gave a number of other examples of kind of what others were doing. This dense text at the banner level is what people are accustomed to. Now, that may be very different from what people see on a banner ad, obviously, in the States, because quite frankly, they don't like a lot of dense data in in a banner and they're just looking for pithier comments and something that's kind of hits you and kind of grabs your interest and then you want to drill down but it you need to be more attention grabbing whereas the banner ad in another geography is going to be a little bit different so you do have to employ these different types of what I would call media strategies kind of across your entire ecosystem and there isn't a one size fits all I love that we think about that stuff all the time, obviously, because we're, we're, we're marketing so many different types of content with all of our customers and just how little those, those little differences are in how, you know, a developer versus someone who's in finance versus a CFO versus a, you know, uh, someone in IT or, you know, like those little things make such a massive difference. And not just that the copy matters, but it's the broader thing. The broader lesson there is like, if even just the little ad copy matters, imagine how much all the other stuff matters. Imagine how they consume a webinar. Imagine how they go to an event. Imagine how they, you know, want to be sold to or marketed to. It's like, it's, it's kind of never ending. Any other additional thoughts on strategy or, or your organization structure, how you think about marketing? So one other one other comment that I would make on personalization, because in some ways there's such an expectation for it to be better than what it is. And I think we've all had the experience of 
you may have called into a call center or you may have gone and entered some information into a form and it's across a certain, like you're on the company's website and you're thinking, I've entered this information to the form. It should be yep. a resident there. You should know who I am. So I don't want to enter it three more times just because I'm downloading another piece of content in yep. the same session that I'm in. And so I, I think that for me, when I think about better engagement and highly personalized experiences, it's do you really know who I am? How do I somewhat reduce the friction? People have in many ways moved away from gated content, but sometimes you want the content gated because you do want to give people more of what they're looking for or be able to say, hey, what about this? Or have you thought about that? Because sometimes you don't exactly know everything that you are searching for. Sometimes you need to be prompted. And so I do think as we kind of move into what I would call, you know, kind of personalization 2.0, 3.0, 4.0, or this next realm of personalization, it's going to be really incumbent upon all of us to really think about how do we provide more frictionless experiences and across our digital domains, whether that's support or customer success or developer portals or other places, because you know that your prospects as well as your customers are entering in these different places, can you provide what I would argue would be a consistent and unified digital journey and experience. And, you know, most of us are not there yet. We just know what it should look like. And ultimately, I think if we get there, it's going to be so much better for both prospects and customers and just give someone such a much more immersive experience, which is what I do know that everyone is looking for. Do you get that experience where you feel like, gosh, I really enjoyed what I just read or that was interesting and thanks for serving up that additional content because that was something else that I wanted to know that I didn't know before. So those are ways I think to deepen engagement with your customers as well as to just create more stickiness for your brand overall. Yeah. It's just doing the work for them. Right. And like that, yeah. I, I was thinking about this last night, I logged into, I set up an old TV and I logged into an old profile on Amazon and I was like, it was a bunch of shows. It was like, you would like this. I was like, I've already watched that. And it was like, you would like this. I was like, I watched that one too. I'm like, I must be logged in the wrong thing. And then I was like, what episode was I on this thing? And like, that's the sort of stuff when it comes to like content and how companies could like do way better, obviously. Like that's the sort of stuff where, oh, you actually have already read a blog post for like, this was the one that you just finished and this is where you left off. Or like you were listening to our podcast and this is where you left off. Like those sort of things that really help you in like the research phase and the discovery phase. Like, hey, yeah. you've been here four times. And like, this four is times. the stuff that you were looking at. Like, I do want to know that stuff. And it is, we all know it is tiny bit creepy, but it's like, we really want to know that stuff. When I'm like <laughs> researching a company, I'm like going to buy a product. Like, I would like to know, have I been here before? Like how many years ago? Like, oh, you looked at this pro company three years ago. You haven't been back since like, a lot has changed, you know, whatever. Right. And we do want to know. So even though people sometimes say, oh, they don't want to know, and I don't want you following me around and all of this, you know, and there's, there's perhaps some truth to that. But my attitude is 
if you go talk to a sales associate and if you were, you know, just happen to be looking for some outfit, something kind of very generic, right? And you're a sales associate, you're going to ask a certain number of questions in order to serve that customer the best that you could. That's what happens when you go into a store. They start asking you questions. What are you looking for? Is it a special occasion? On and on and on. You know, they start asking the good ones, start talking to you about, you know, things that are as mundane as like even your family life, because essentially they're not necessarily sizing you up to say, what can I sell you? They're sizing you up to say, what is the best thing that I can offer you so that you would actually convert to buying something? They're asking you those questions on purpose and somehow in that, in the span of someone doing that in person, it doesn't seem as intrusive as when that may be done digitally. And and I think that for, just for saving time and for some of the other reasons, if you don't, you know, you're not going to do everything face to face, that having a digital assistant would help you to do some of those things certainly much more effectively. And I'll just give you another example of that. We are doing a recommendation engine for retail. And in the example, I said that it would be important. So this is what for some outerwear for, you know, someone who's like going to go mountain climbing or something like this. And I said, as part of the kind of narrative for this, that the recommendation engine in terms of looking at modeling in a large language model that they would actually know based on the data that was then sitting in the database that they would know that the person was allergic to wool. Now, if you, if you just Google, what is the, you know, kind of materials that keep you warm, they are kind of, you know, wool and other animal based products and not everyone can wear wool. And I said, as part of the, you know, kind of recommendation engine, what this would be ingesting and what it would already know, it would say, like, I understand that this is an allergy that you have. Here is the alternative fabrics that give you the same kind of warmth, but don't have the same other properties that are, you know, discomforting or make you uncomfortable. Because someone who's allergic to wool, trust me, you're not going to buy something wool because it is like you're, you you really are uncomfortable. And so those kinds of things, as compared to telling me that someone bought four jackets that look like something else, is personalization. When you yep. really understand some specific characteristics, when you really can put forth a recommendation where someone says this company really does know something about me and you feel like you're saving time and they are invested in giving you the best outcome that you can achieve. So the best opportunity for success, right? Without, without spending a lot of time. Cause if you go to a store that only sells wool jackets, then why go there? You need, you need other options that, you know, have Gore-Tex or something else. So those are just things to think about. I love that. I was talking to, this was years ago, I was talking to a senior product leader at Stitch Fix and they were saying that basically that their data showed that 
if someone answered, and I think it was either eight or 10 questions of their survey that they would, they basically would turn way less. But if they, if they just like skipped it or if they answered less questions, it was like, if they answered six, they would turn like 20% more or something like that. And it was like, actually just to get the information from them was so valuable because the person was, would get a better experience. And I always think about that, like with clothes, we're like, yeah, if you get those two extra measurements, like it will literally fit better. But for tech, for B2B, we're just like, yeah, 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 yeah. But just give, give me the thing. Let me try it. Let me try it. Let me try it. And it's like, actually, if you could just get a little bit more data on the front end, we could probably make this whole thing better for you. If you get a little bit more data on the front end, you can actually see whether the product is actually a fit or what do you need to do to make the product be a fit? I mean, you know, anything is what I call elastic and scalable. So it's not like software is obviously like a pair of jeans where it just kind of fits perfectly when you put it on or not. It You have to kind of understand what are those dimensions and capabilities that are there that you can use and understanding what those really are or what's most important. And that's what allows you to do a better job with your own customers. I always say in B2B, it's not so much Yes, selling to American Airlines is important, but what's better for me to understand is what is the American Airline passenger experience? What does that need to be? And knowing that experience and understanding that what are you trying to do with your Advantage program? What are you trying to do with your loyalty program? And what does it mean when your operations are operating at top capacity? What does that mean for the airline? And how does our technology help you do that is what we're really focused on. And I think those are the things because it's about the customer's customer. Yes, American Airlines is extraordinarily important, but who do they care about? They care about the consumers that are flying on their flights every day. Okay, let's get to the playbook. This is what's great about sports. This is what the greatest thing about sports is. You play to win the game. Hello, you play to win the game. This is our segment where we open up the playbook and talked about the tactics that help you win. Jacqueline, what are your three channels or tactics that are your uncuttable budget items? I don't think I would have said this a year ago and not because we were in COVID, but, but just because I think how important it, the face-to-face experience is today even more than it was five years ago. And I, so I would say you, you still have to do events. You still have to do in-person events. There is no substitute for people feeling like they have a human connection and a human interaction with someone. Critical. Now, maybe weird for me to say the next one is digital. <laughs> So, so, so the next one is digital because so much of what people do just in terms of time saving, because time is so scarce, is you have to have a really strong digital strategy for you to kind of make any inroads because that's where everyone looks first. You're not going to be able to get them to an event if you haven't done the work, I would say, digitally and been able to kind of have those conversations through your digital channels. And the the third and really equally 
important to all of them is this notion of how do you build trust and thought leadership around your brand? And so it is building awareness and having a strategy on thought leadership that really exemplifies why your brand should be the brand that people come to. I think in a world where trust has eroded significantly, mm-hmm. that building trust and in, in understanding that you need to have a position and a thought leadership point of view on that is, is incredibly important, particularly at this time. How do you do that? And how do you get those stories out there and get that, get that information out there? Well, one of the things that we do is, I mean, one, we, we, we test and do a lot of research. We, we are one of the most trusted companies. We've been for the last 20 years listed as one of the most ethical companies. People talk about responsible AI. I like, I tell people that AI is not responsible. It is a technology. Yeah. Great point. AI needs to be trusted people need to be responsible and that it is incredibly important for people to be responsible. And when people are responsible, I do believe that they build trust, they create an environment of trust, and that this is going to be so important over this kind of next horizon. We are at an inflection point with AI and generative AI. And the only way that that this is going to kind of serve us for the betterment of all mankind is really to be to be able to be trusted. The way that I see it is, and, and obviously like AI being a term that is literally so enormous to even talk about or to think about, but specifically as it relates to B2B marketing and how we're using it in B2B marketing is if you say like, what are the four best ways to you know, write a blog post and you put that into ChatGPT or whatever, and it spits out this thing, perhaps that gets the blog post done for you or whatever. But if you want to know Jacqueline's four best ways to create a blog post, that to me is way more interesting because that's actually something that she's been doing. I know that it's biased because it's from her. Like, and I, the, the, I trust the bias, right? I'm like, I know that she does things her way. It is not the right way or the wrong way. It's her way. And, and I can pattern match like my stuff off of that. Whereas if you're like doing the same thing with content creation, where it's like, you have this other thing where it's just predicting what words should go next. Again, it might be maybe even like a, a more correct answer, or it may be something that is much, you know, is whatever. But I think that that's, that's where you go back to like the idea of, of responsible is like, who is responsible for hitting publish on this thing? Because if our goal is to help our prospects and customers do their jobs better, then like someone has to be to stand behind the stuff that you're putting out and be like, Hey, I rubber stamp this, that I think that this is like good enough to go out. And if it's not, you shouldn't put it out. So like if AI can help you do that, great. If you can't, if it can't, then like you shouldn't put it out either way. Yeah. And I think your first statement was, you know, how to write a great blog is different from writing the blog. And so how to write a great blog may give you some pointers on, you know, make sure you don't go over 500 words and make sure that you use plain language and make sure that you have a strong headline and make sure that, you know, you give specific customer examples. 
what I just said are four great ways to kind of bring content to a blog. If you ask chat GPT that question, you're likely to get that type of answer as compared to asking it to write the blog for you on what are the best ways and kind of compose it very different composing something, which is, or versus giving you some ideas on making sure you don't forget like important topics that should be considered for your specific blog or category, which is where I think chat GPT can be valuable versus chat GPT being the author of something. And like you said, if, if I did the research and that popped up and I would say, Oh, here's great. You know, kind of, you're right. These are the four things I need to catch a headline. Is this, I, you know, is this headline catchy? Oh, I need to have a customer example. Here's my customer example. It may be able to help you do those things in a way that you're saying, I don't have to think about what are the four elements that make it best. I just want to have the four elements. And as long as I'm kind of making sure that, do I have these four elements? Yes, I do. Now I'm good to go. And to your point, again, going back to the trust, you know, plagiarism is still a real thing. Yeah. You, you've got to be responsible for your your own intellectual property and that you're not, you know, taking others. Right. Which also known as stealing. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. And, and I, I'm like and I think that that's sort of like, hey, well, we're borrowing everything. This is not necessarily the case. I, I think the other thing, too, is like, hey, give me 20 headlines you know, for a, for a blog post that is like X, Y, Z, like, okay, give me two more, make those sound like, you know, Sean Connery is saying it or whatever, you know, like yeah. there's stuff that you can do. That's like so fun and funny and creative and like all of that stuff that can get to, like you said, working the problem. But like at the end of the day, like your company has to put the rubber stamp on it and put it out there and say that it's, that it's yours. And if you're saying like the seven best ways to run a mile, and it's like, does your company really believe that this is the seven best ways to run a mile? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, because if not, you know, it then... should not be putting that out there. But that, to your point, Ian, that goes back to trust. And it goes back to you and the company and the people that are in the company. You are the ones that have to be responsible and accountable. And you've got to be accountable to your employees, you've got to be accountable to yourself. And then last but not least, you have to be accountable to your shareholders. And and I think that it's going to be really important that people step up and, and own that because when when they don't, I think it's going to be difficult, right? Because you, nobody wants to be the first person that has a big, you know, faux pas. Some attorney already had it where they wrote some kind of brief and got censured, I think, by some judge because... They used information coming out of chat GPT and what happened, it's only as good as the data that's inside of it. So the data was some bad data that had been put in by someone else, which is why you have to be responsible. Responsible is the word and it's the people that have to be responsible. And I will say that every day until it's really, really believed. (laughs) Yeah. And. And, and it brings up another, another point here, which is like, sometimes the, the harder thing is the thing that you need to do. But also when it comes to like specifically content and thought leadership and stuff like this, that like the easy button is not always the best way to do it. If it's something that is like accelerating 
ideas to get it out there to get, to take action and do that that's that's like one thing but I, like one of the things that that y'all did that you recently published a really cool piece of content and this is something that you all work really hard at for a long time can you tell us a little bit about that yeah we are just published what is on the conversation around data and analytics and being ready and preparing yourself for the AI-driven enterprise. And we believe that the AI-driven enterprise will be here sooner than you think, and that we think it's going to be around 2030. So it's really only a few short years to get ready. And what we learned from that study, and, and I would love for you all to read it, but what we learned from that study is really most companies don't believe that they're currently prepared, but by 2030, nearly probably over 70% of the respondents said that they believe their organizations would be prepared. So there is a lot of work to do. Most of the respondents believe that they need to have a connected enterprise. Most of you listening to this podcast, the first thing you'll say is we've got data in many, many places. We have a lot of we have a lot of we have a lot of data silos. I think that's one of the great things about Teradata is what we do is harmonize and integrate information, do a lot of oh, yeah. data modeling so people can make quicker business decisions. And from that study, we just kind of learned one, not just people's ambitions, right? Hey, this is really important for us to really have an enterprise that is more data-driven, but really understanding where they are now and what they believe that they need to do in order to meet that ambition of being ready for 2030. And as you mentioned earlier, Ian, a big theme was on trust and governance and compliance. That's a big theme. Another big theme was innovation, just believing that if they have not so much just a nut information. And it's not about generative AI telling them the next big thing to do, but really how do they really use innovation across the enterprise to figure out maybe there is someone in finance that has an idea that could help someone in marketing come up with a better way to do something there and really just driving faster, more efficient productivity around innovation and capabilities. So those are a few of the salient points that came out of the study, but really excited and would love for everyone to read it because it's yeah. now available. I'm really excited and I'm going to dig in. We're going to link it up here in the show notes so everybody can check out Enterprise 2030. But this is like, it highlights one of my favorite, two of my favorite things about content, which is number one, I love independent research studies because they're super valuable because it gives you a snapshot in time. And, and then number two, I love things that are forward looking because we get the opportunity to, to read the tea leaves. And like, this is how things are, right? Like you have to prepare your business for six years from now. Like you have to do that. Everyone has to do that. So, and you, and all of us are sitting there like, am I going to be at this company six years from now? I don't know, but, but I need to start preparing the organization for that and I need to prepare myself for it. And so it's another thing that I, I always love content that's forward looking because it gets a little bit into the sort of, you know, what might happen for sure, the, the crystal ball reading and prognosticating. And it gets those individual people like assessing themselves and to say like, well, where do I stand in terms of, you know, what this next thing is going to happen, which like, I don't know what is going to 
happens. So then how do I take concrete steps right now in order to see that? And so I just think that type of content is something that like more people should do. It's something that people should be investing in. And you can do that research again next year. You can do it the year after that. What do we get right? What do we get wrong? And things like that, I think, compound over time and they give you a well to go back to over and over and over again. How do you know you're moving the needle? I mean, when we started this conversation with Forbes, it literally was around the same time last year. And my pitch to them was the following. There are a lot of people that say data is the new oil, data is gold, data is this. And I have said, you know, my, my own belief is that data is more like water because this planet is over 72% water. That is what the earth is comprised of. The usable water that you can use on this planet is two and a half percent. Most of that is in glaciers, which means that the real usable fresh water is three tenths of one percent. And so when you think about data and all the data that's out there in the world, about 90 percent of the data is like data that's duplicated or replicated. And how much of the core data is new data and information that you can use. And when you distill it down, it probably is very similar to water where the usable data that you can use once you filtered it, cleaned it, harmonized it, associated it with the right things is is probably less than two or 3%. And that takes a lot of work. And at the end of the day, like our thematic or our core belief is that we believe that people thrive when empowered with the right information. And I haven't been able to find an example when we came up with that as our kind of theme and thesis, that that's who we are, that's what we do, that's what we live for, is that I couldn't actually come up with a thing where I thought that people didn't actually thrive. People don't always necessarily use the right information when they get it, but if they had it, and they were able to use it, that they would actually be better off. And it's being able to distill that information down to a place that can be used. It's not gold, it is not oil, it is water, and it has to be clarified, pristine, and filtered in order for it to keep you alive and healthy. And that's what good data does, and good data management does it even more. So. That that would be kind of the thing that I really want people to walk away with when not just when they read the study, but having that as a core belief and how they think about information to be used as a baseline for driving their business forward. I love it. Like how Tom Brady drinks like 5,000 glasses a day. Like once you get it all going, then you can drink a bunch. They're all going. Exactly. <gasps> okay. Let's get to the dust up. Uh-oh. Here comes trouble. You may have heard that there was a dust-up involving yours truly. And now we've got a wild scrum with fights breaking out all over the place. And it is getting really ugly as we've got punches and kicks. A segment where we talk about healthy tension, whether that's with your board, your sales teams, your competitors, or anyone else. Jacqueline, have you had a memorable dust-up in your career? Oh, I think we've all had a dust-up. <laughs> I think we've all disagreed at some point. And, and, and I'll share not something that's so specific, but something that's very general. 
I think that, as you know, Ian, I think between sales and marketing or just other functions in the organization that have similar goals, there's always a healthy bit of tension on, you know, whether it's how to approach clients or how to tell a story. Those things are, are always going to happen. I tend to be extraordinarily data driven. So I tend to focus on not necessarily my personal emotion, but like on, as the Gen Zers yeah. say, I have the receipts. It's so <laughs> people know I always, I come with receipts. I come with, they, they know that's how I roll. I roll with receipts. It's kind of like, okay, thanks for your opinion, but I have receipts because I just tend to be very uh, data driven. And so I think dust ups always occur when kind of it's like opinion versus opinion versus more about like kind of what is the information that we have to kind of really come to the best decision or outcome. I've learned over my career to really build allies and build relationships. I think that's something that you learn as you get older. These are things that I wish I knew when I was 25 or 30, because at 25 or 30, you know stuff and you're like, God, I know this and no one's listening to me. And you don't necessarily take the time to build the relationships and build consensus. Anyone that I'm mentoring, that is like the first thing that I tell them, you know, please, please, please think about it's not so much about being right, even if you are right, but take the time to build the relationships and consensus. And then I think you can minimize the death steps, but you know, you're not going to get along on everything all the time. And I think healthy tension is good. I think the conversation should be had. I think talking about things, people shy away from talking about stuff. I think it's one of the most important things you can do. You're not always going to agree on everything. Well, you know, it's funny when I took negotiation class many, many moons ago, our negotiation instructor was like, the person who is more prepared wins the negotiation like virtually every time. And it's just like one of those things that stuck with me. The modern allegory is just bring their seats. Um, bring their seats. Yeah. <laughs> okay, let's get to our final segment. Quick hits. These are quick questions and quick answers, just like how qualified.com helps companies generate pipeline quickly, tap into your greatest asset, your website, to identify your most valuable visitors and instantly, I mean instantly, start sales conversations right there on the site. Qualified is quick and easy. Just like these questions, go to qualified.com to learn more. Jacqueline, are you ready? I am ready, Ian. Number one, what's a hidden talent or skill that's not on your resume? Well, I used to dance in a dance company. I, I think my hidden talent is this kind of hidden energy that's inside of me. I love bringing out that kind of joy. And even in my meetings that I have with my team, sometimes I start just playing songs and getting everyone up to dance. So my hidden talent is kind of doing that spontaneously. I don't think people expect it. And then when you're an officer of a company, they're like, oh my God, I can't believe the CMO is doing this thing. But <laughs> something that I love. And, 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 and I also just kind of really love thinking and talking about the future and bringing people along. And I think those two things together are, are my hidden talents, if you will. Do you have a favorite book, podcast, TV show that you, that you're checking out that you'd recommend? Well, other than your podcast. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> hey. Pipeline visionaries. <laughs> That's right. I was just reading this book this summer, which is called Radically Human, which is 
really interesting because it talks about this integration of, you know, AI with kind of the, the human existence and no, the machines are not going to take over the world people. We are, again, uh, responsible. So we just need to make sure that we, we understand that. But I, I love that. I love the notion of using it to be better humans, but not using it to take over humanity. Back in the day, there was, everyone was terrified because there's a technology change and they thought it was going to take everybody's jobs. And the, the technology was electricity and the jobs were the lamplighters. So I think yeah. we'll be okay. I think we'll be okay. I think. Do you have a favorite non-marketing hobby that maybe indirectly makes you a better marketer? Yes. My non-marketing hobby is I do a thing with my teams, which they know that I do. I love just walking and I do a walk and talk with many of my team team members. I, I do it with everybody. I do it with my whole family. I'll, I'll just start walking and then I'll be like, Hey, I'm going to, I'm walking. Let's do a walk and talk. So that's become a big thing. I think it one, just the walking allows me to kind of just decompress, but I've solved many problems, including the world's problems on my walk and talks. Oh, I totally agree. Walk <laughs> and talk. Being outside in the world and conversations, solve it all. Final question. What is your best advice for a first time CMO? I know you've done this job a couple of times. What's your best advice? The best advice that I give really all CMOs always is to really understand the business that you are marketing. It is still amazing to me, and I'm always fascinated when I talk to people who may be in marketing, but they don't understand the business and how that business actually makes money. So yeah. it's not, I sell a widget, but what does that widget do in the world, and how does the company selling the widget actually make money? Maybe it makes money on servicing widgets, but not on producing the widget itself. You'd be surprised at the number of people who don't understand their business models. And the best thing that any marketer can do uh, is you're, you're not the CFO, but please know how much the CFO will respect you as a marketer when you are speaking their language and talking to them in a business acumen and vernacular that they understand and not talking sometimes how we can talk as marketers understand that is is really critical and and i promise you i promise you you will get more budget than you think that you can by just have being able to help them understand that you understand what the business model is and that you're there to help drive and grow that business jacqueline it has been absolutely wonderful having you on the show for listeners, you can go to teradata.com, check them out, go check out the Enterprise 2030 report. We'll link it up in the show notes. Any final thoughts, anything to plug? Other than the 2030 report, I thought one question you were going to ask me is what would I be doing if I wasn't a marketer and you did ask I, 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 I skipped it for time, but I, I would happily ask it. I know you skipped it, but I decided that I would be the new Oprah for marketers. Because I think that this is an interesting time for us. There's, there's a lot of really cool and unique things that are happening in marketing that weren't around like five or 10 years ago. So I feel like this is our time. Totally. Well, I know somebody who runs a company that, that, makes, that makes shows. So we'll have to okay. talk offline. <laughs> we'll have to talk offline for sure. 
in my vision board, I think make the next Oprah of marketing would be would be my purview. So I'm ready. <laughs> awesome. Well, it's just, it's so wonderful chatting with you. Thanks again. Thanks for being so generous with your time. And we will talk again soon. Thank you. Thank you, Ian. Thanks for having me. Thanks again to our friends at qualified.com, a conversational sales and marketing platform that transforms the way B2B companies sell. Go to qualified.com to learn more.